good for announcements. Well, before I get into the word, we'll be in Luke 17. Good brother of ours, Rob. If you've been coming to this study, you know Rob has been faithful. I think he was here since the beginning, if not one of the first ones. Um, I remember the first study I heard Rob give. It was at Java Bliss. Were any of you guys at the study when we had it at Java Bliss? One. And my girlfriend. All right. She was there. Anyone else? Wow. Really? And obviously Fry. Cristiano? Okay. A couple of other brothers. Well, yes. Java Bliss. We had it there a couple years ago. And Rob gave his first devotion, I think. It was on faith as a mustard seed. I still remember his topic. And so he's going to be blessed. I know... He's got a word from the Lord, and I know you will as well. So let's go ahead and welcome Rob, all right? I'll just let you do it. How are you guys doing tonight? Um, I'm Robert, and uh, you usually see me sitting behind the computer. Tonight's a Mac, tonight it's a Mac, and I'm not happy about that. But the Lord, the Lord likes to humble me in different ways. Um, I'll be in. Oh, I'm going to be in John 13. Would you pray with me, Father? I just thank you so much, Lord, that. You would even choose to to use a man like me, Lord, that you would even allow me to stand here and and read your word and and to talk about you. Lord, I ask that you would not, uh, not one word from my mouth would be my word, Lord, but it would be your words. I ask that the people would have ears to hear and that you would speak, Lord. I just thank you so much and I love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. John chapter 13, starting in in, uh, 34, Jesus speaking. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just just as I have loved you, and you should love one another, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciple. Um, and we just had Thanksgiving and at my house, um, everybody comes to my house and I am the only Christian in the house and my mom is a Christian, but, uh, everybody, um, you know, everybody loves my mom and they're going to listen to my mom regardless. And, um. But I was just uh, standing there looking around in my family, kind of pretty worldly. Um, my brother in particular came on my heart. Uh, we don't, me and my brother don't really talk anymore. Um, I think I'm definitely the one that burnt the bridge. He, uh, he likes to mock. He likes to, to mock God and take um, the Lord's name in vain and, and to do things in that manner to to mock God in front of me. And I don't think I ever give him any grace. I was um, doing prayer and chair a few months ago, and my mom said to me, you're probably going to be a good counselor, Robert, because you love strangers more than you love your family. And that really pierced my heart. I was thinking, why... Why do I love the strangers more than I love my family? I definitely love my family. Uh, but I think I'm harder on them because I know them more. Uh, just when I was out here getting the chairs, a man came up to me and asked me if he could have some money for... Um, he was renting a room. He has four kids, and he couldn't afford to pay for this month. He needed $28. And instantly, I wanted to give him the money. And I stood and I talked to him for a while, and I could definitely see it was a real need. He wasn't... I could see where the money was going. He wasn't going to go buy uh, alcohol or drugs or anything. He really was just wanting to provide for his family, and I gave him everything I had. 
And I don't say that so that you could hear me say I gave money away, but because all this man wanted to do was provide for his family. And he definitely knew God. I talked to him for a while. He knew God. He just was having a hard time and he needed money. And with my brother, I see my brother wasting money. I see him mocking God in front of me and I definitely don't give him that grace. And I bring up my brother and I bring up Thanksgiving because right now is probably we're probably going to be around people that we're not normally around as much. We're going to be around family members that we don't get to see that often. Um, during Christmas time, they're probably going to come over to your house or you're going to go to their house. And you may be like me and you're going to be the only believer in that house. And you need to you need to let your light shine. You need to love them regardless. If they're mocking you, you need to love them even more. If they don't respect you, then you need to just love them. Um, I don't know how to tell you how to love them. You know your family. You know the people around you. You know how to take care of them. But I would ask you to go out of your way when you see them. Go out of your way. Kill them with kindness. Jesus said, They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. He didn't say, They will know you're my disciples by how you know my word, how you worship me, how you serve in your church. But he said, How you love one another. So I want to encourage you to go and love your family, not only your family, but when you're out shopping and you want to just get your thing and go, I want you to to look around and see if there's anybody you can pray for. Um, Take that time. Take the extra time. Christmas is not a good time for a lot of people. Um, I know that when I think about Christmas, I think about Christmas at Disneyland. The trees are out. The lights are up. I love it. Um... But for a lot of people, they think about the family member that died, um, not having enough money for presents. People barely have enough money to pay the bills. And right now their children are asking, can I have this and can I have that? And they just can't do it. You need to um, be looking out for those people, praying for those people. And if you can help them, help them. If not, I'm sure they'll appreciate you just loving on them. So let's be real disciples of Christ. Let's show them that we are disciples of Christ by loving them. Amen. Why don't you let me pray. Father, I just... uh, I trust you, Lord. I trust you that you are in control. I trust you that you are going to take care of these things, that you're going to take care of these people. I pray that you would give us a heart for the people, Lord, that we would just know for some reason that someone needs prayer that someone needs our love, that someone needs us just to be there with them. Father, I ask that you would put people in our path, Lord, to to pray for, to, to just give that extra help to, Lord. Father, please don't let us um, build walls around our heart, Lord, but let us just expose it to the people. Lord, I just thank you so much, and I love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What a great word. I don't know why this is, but holidays are extremely difficult for me for that very reason. Loving on the family, coming to see them again for the while. Like you hear about what's going on with their lives and what's going on with yours, and, and sometimes it's very surface level, and then you don't know what else to say, and so you just hope the food is ready soon, and you just eat and get them out or something. But Why is it so hard to love them? It's incredible to me. I mean, I remember just talking to the Lord Thanksgiving morning, knowing I was going to be seeing a lot of family, trying to figure out why I just was hoping that they would end soon. I mean, it is so easy and feels good for me to come here and love you guys and to teach and to worship the Lord. But why in my quiet time and why before my own family is it so hard? I don't get it. 
And it's not until these truths begin to really hit you. It's not until you really begin to see that just like in here are hurting souls and people who need the Lord and Christians who need to be encouraged. The same goes for your family. Um, Just because they're my family doesn't change the fact that they're a sinner and that they need the Lord. Um, I think Rob hit it on the head. It's much more personal because they know you so well. And so as soon as you step out and say something about the Lord, you know the attacks are going to come your way because they know who you are. And they know how your life is lived. And uh, so it makes it hard. But what a great word, especially around this time, because it's always an interesting to minister to family. And, and Rob, I get that too. It's, you're around your, your family at your church so much, and uh, you don't get to see your own family at times, and that's tough. Um, but let's be ones who love them and look out for them as well, because we want them to know the Lord as we do, so we can worship with them with all eternity. Right there with her on our side. So thank you, Rob. Thank you very much, man. Go ahead and open up to your Bibles. We'll be in Luke chapter 17 tonight. It's been a fun one so far. We've started to go through the New Testament. We've been working our way through the Gospels. And I know it's been difficult in this aspect just because we have to teach every seven. We don't get a chance to really spend time and really look at uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just what Jesus said and did and how he ministered. And I know um, Pastor John MacArthur has said that if there be any um, books that he can teach all his life, it would be the Gospels to see people be transformed at his church. And if he would love to spend his whole ministry in the Gospels, I think I would too. There's so much to be pulled from. And we only get every seven. But we trust you've been reading along each day through the weeks, and so we'll be in Luke 17 tonight. And as you know, we've kind of come to the end of Luke. We've seen his early ministry. Uh, Jeremy taught on the birth of Luke and kind of the the early foundation there in his ministry. And and Aaron had some good words last week about being sent out, uh, the role as those who go out and do evangelism. Now we're, we're winding down with Jesus. We're in his final year of ministry here in Luke 17. And so what you're going to see is kind of two main themes stick out. Uh, One, obviously, is the cross, uh, that which he would have to endure at the end of his life. And so he uh, predicts quite a bit, three times plus, actually, that he would be uh, betrayed and arrested and falsely accused and then hung on the cross. And the second thing that we see Christ do is spend a lot of time with his own disciples um, because he's leaving soon. And so he's got a lot to say to them. They need to know a lot. They need to be equipped for the ministry to come because he won't be there with them. So what we'll see tonight is, is pretty much a dialogue between Jesus and his boys. And that's what we'll see even through the rest of the gospel is just the upper room time there. Um, so let's go ahead and dive right in. But before we do, let me pray. Father, as Brian was singing tonight, Lord, that we are undeserving to be here. We are undeserving to be called children of you. And yet, it's by your grace And uh, by your love, God, that we call ourselves children and that we could come in here and worship. And we're so thankful that you've also given us your word that we can stand on, that we can hold fast to. And so we pray that you would speak tonight in a powerful way, Lord. I cannot do this without you. And I so desperately need your Holy Spirit. Uh, So please come and minister to the people. I pray that you would fill me now. And that you would do a great work. We want to glorify Jesus tonight, so please come and be amongst us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 17. As I mentioned, most of a dialogue with his disciples. And I've kind of sectioned this chapter off in three different sections. The first is going to be um, our time looking at the attitude of a disciple. What is the attitude of the disciple towards sin, uh, forgiveness, faith? And their duty as a Christian. How are we to be as disciples of Christ? What is our attitude towards these things? Uh, The second section that we'll be looking at is the purpose. The ultimate purpose uh, for miracles and healings. What is the ultimate goal that God is trying to do in doing healings and miracles? And finally, the third section we'll be looking at is the kingdom of God. The coming of our Lord and how they relate. And how are we to respond to these things knowing that our Lord is coming back. So... Have that in your mind and use that kind of as an outline. And let's go ahead and just get started. Verse 1. Then Jesus said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come 
but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Look there, he says, it is impossible that no offenses would come. What is he saying? He's saying that temptations are a reality. Temptations are going to come regardless. As Christians in this sinful nature that still exists, we have to battle sin every day. That's nothing new to us, or at least it shouldn't be. So temptations are coming. Sin will come. Um, That's hard to avoid. In fact, Jesus says it's impossible to avoid. But here is where his warning goes. He says, but woe to the person, to him through whom they do come. Woe to the person who is used or facilitating even more temptations. In other words, woe to the person who's causing other people to stumble. Leading temptation and sin into their lives by what you're doing. He says that you should take a millstone, the thing that they use on donkeys and horses around their neck to direct them and, and ride on them. He says, take that and tie that around your neck and then be cast into the sea. It's better for you to do that than to cause one of these little children to stumble. Now, the word here, little children, could be, you know, literally used to use for children. But more importantly, it's also used for the children of God. God is saying, don't be one who stumbles my flock. Don't be one who leads them into sin. This is a serious charge of Christ here within the body of Christ. And this could come in many different forms. We can cause people to stumble by Obviously, the words that we say, the way I teach Bible studies can cause you to sin. If I'm being fair to Scripture, if I'm being true to what the Word of God says, um, what I listen to and what I watch on TV or in the movies can lead one to sin. If they're saying, well, this is how Christians live. I'm a new believer. I don't really know how things go here. And by what you listen to and by what you watch can definitely lead people to sin. Or how about this? How you dress. The way you dress can lead people to sin. Depending on what it is that they really struggled with before they were a believer, I mean, there's a ton of things that can happen. And it's not so much that I'm desiring to be legalistic here, that Jesus is at all, but that I think it's safer to err on the side of caution and err on the side of holiness than to just be flippant with our Christianity and kind of live under the banner of forgiveness and then we just do whatever we want. We've got to be very careful in the way that we conduct ourselves as believers, especially within the family of God, especially within those who uh, you may not know so well as Christians. If you go to a large church or you're part of a large Bible study, you may not know everyone that well and what it is they do. So you've got to be cautious in how you handle yourself. I loved what C.S. Lewis said. I read a book by him a long time. It was called The Weight of Glory. I recommend it for all you guys. And he said, As Christians, with our actions, we're either pushing people closer to heaven or closer to hell. By everything you do. And that's a a weighty charge there. To think that every single one of your actions is being counted, obviously, to push people closer to heaven, closer to God, or closer to hell. That is a weighty charge. Uh, But thankfully, we have the word for our direction. We have things like this. We have the the charges and the woes that Jesus gives to give us clear guidelines on how we should conduct ourselves. And so we have there that the disciple and his attitude towards sin should be very cautious. Know these things. Be one who does not lead other people to stumble in these areas. Look at there at verse 3. Jesus flips the coin on sin and now addresses it in such a way that when a disciple is being sinned against... He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Look there at three. He sins against you, rebuke him. That's not too commonly heard, to rebuke someone when when they're in their sin. Careful now. A lot of times you hear from people, Matthew 7, right? Judge not lest you be judged. But I think one of the most loving things that you can do is correct somebody when they're in sin. It really is. But notice he says to correct him. Not to run and tell friends or the pastor or other people who you fellowship with at church with and what you saw them doing. It is to be a private conversation with that person. That's who you speak with. 
You go up to them and you address the sin in their life. And you do it with love and grace. Always love and grace, especially on the first offense. You may not know the situation, but you handle it though. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about people's souls here. And if it's a sin that they continue to live in, we may not even know if they were truly saved. And not wanting to step on somebody's toes can be the worst damage that you can do. So I would say pray, go in grace and mercy, and correct the brother or the sister who's in sin. Very important. Very important. Look what he adds there. And if he sins against you seven times, has anyone been sinned against seven times in one day by the same person? I, I, I read this passage and I really try to think about it. Has anyone ever done it? I, I had to say no. But let's take this into a real situation now, right? Let's get to take this study and let's try to put this into practical use here and see what this really looks like and so we can understand the task that Jesus is giving us. Uh, many of you guys have been coming here for a while and you know we have great neighbors right there in the sushi joint. And for some reason on Tuesdays, the owner, he likes to go, ah, welcome. There he goes. <laughs> Whenever the doors open, right? Whenever the doors, and it's only on Tuesdays. Now, I'm not coming out and saying it's, it's purposefully a distraction to our study. But what if he came in here tonight and said, hey, you know what? I, I know you guys have been doing a study for there, over there for a long time, and I want to apologize for being a distraction. We say, you know what, brother? Thank you. Forgive. We forgive you, man. We give him the gospel, and he goes back into his restaurant, and then five minutes later, hey, hey, welcome, sushi. And then he comes back in here. And he says, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a distraction. Please forgive me. I don't want to interrupt your study. Second time. How about the third time? Hey, hey. Forgiven. Fourth time. Fourth time forgiven fifth time how many of us are going to stand up and actually just say something we're gonna be like we already know just go ahead but the fifth time the sixth time the seventh time are you kidding me seven times i can i can already see what would be going on in my heart i'd just have to step away from the mic and go in the bathroom and have aaron take the mic because i just would not be gracious i wouldn't But Jesus is saying seven times. In fact, in Matthew 18, uh, this conversation takes place with Peter, and the number there is seven times 77. And you can do the math there and figure that out, but there's no number that's to be put on forgiveness. Because if there was, none of us would be in heaven. I'll tell you that right now. I'd be the first one in hell. And so the person who is unwilling to forgive the small things knows nothing of God's forgiveness. I mean, how can we literally say as Christians that we've received Christ and his salvation and his gospel and his forgiveness and then struggle in our forgiveness with other people? How does that happen? Jesus says if there is a conflict between someone and there's been no reconciliation, don't even come to the altar with your sacrifices until you have made restoration with that person. And can you imagine what the church would look like in our worship service if everyone in there was reconciled with one another? If actual forgiveness had gone down? Can you imagine just what God is withholding possibly because there is no reconciliation? Because there is a lack of forgiveness? You remember the parable that Jesus told, right? With the servant who had a debt to the king. The king forgave him. It was a massive debt. And then the servant turns around And he refuses to forgive his own servant, a very small amount. And so the king punishes him. And the lesson there is you must forgive. Because you you have been forgiven a great deal. A great deal. We must learn to forgive. The attitude of the disciple is to have great forgiveness. Look at verse 5. This is interesting because I know in my Bible there's a separation. And probably in yours too. But I, I believe that what the apostles say here is very relevant to forgiveness. They say, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
And so here Jesus gives this great task on abstaining from sin and being one who forgives much in your Christian life. And so the disciples' response is, well, Lord, we need more faith. If this is what you're calling us to do, we, we need more faith. That's, that's a heavy calling. And so Jesus gives him this illustration. He says, not really. If you had faith as a mustard seed, a mulberry tree can come out of the ground and be moved. You see, it's not the quantity of your faith that's going to allow you to forgive much. It's not the quantity, but it's got to be the object of our faith. You see, if our object of, the, of our faith is in God, who has forgiven much, then we too will be able to forgive much. It's not in your quantity. You don't need more faith to be able to forgive. You just got to understand who your faith is in. You have a great God. It's not your great faith that's going to move mountains and lift trees. It's your great God who will do those things. And your faith is in him. And so Jesus corrects them on this issue of faith. And so Liz says, listen, great. The amount of forgiveness can be forgiven or can be, I'm sorry. <laughs> your amount of forgiveness is not dependent upon your faith. You got to understand that. Look here at verse 7. He gives a simple illustration and a story of duty. He says, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, When he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you when, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We're unprofitable. We've only done what our duty is to do. And so look at the great task that he's given us. To abstain from sin and causing others to sin. To be able to forgive much. And then he gives this illustration of the servant. At the end of the night, the servant says, I'm unprofitable, and I've only done what I'm supposed to do. And I think the point here is for Jesus to show not that God is a, a cruel, heartless master with his servants, or even that the task that we've been given is, is rigorous, hard work, but that the humility of the servant is to say, I am unworthy. I don't even deserve to serve you. And I've only done what I'm supposed to be doing. I think when we get to heaven, no one's going to turn and say to God, really, this is all I get? This is it? I mean, did you see me working down there? I don't think the attitude that we should have even today would be, well, God, don't you see me right now? I'm working hard. I mean, this is all I get right now? There will be no pats on your back in heaven. Jesus simply says, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. This is what our calling is to forgive much and to abstain from sin, to pray for an increased amount of faith. That is our calling. We're simply doing what we're supposed to be doing. There's nothing special there. There's no extra reward. And I think it's great because it, at least in my mind, it, it stirred two complications that I had early on. And I was thinking, number one, am I doing these things as a Christian, whether it be reading my Bible or praying or serving or... Um, fellowshipping with believers, or buying Bible-type books? Am I doing those things because I have to or because I want to? And I think the other extreme is I'm doing all these things because I know there's a reward at the end of the day. And I think those are two extremes we have to stay away from. And I think the perfect balance is found in Scripture. First John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that you keep my commandments, and my commandments are not burdensome. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, is what he said there. And so our love for God is expressed in our obedience to his commandments and to his law. David said in Psalm 40, I delight in your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will, and your laws within my heart, is what David said there. It's not because we're forced to, 
or because there is a reward for us, though there is, it's because we love God that we do these things. And any reward that comes from it is a result of his grace on us. Because at the end, as the servant said, we're undeserving, unprofitable. None of it is due to us. And yet he's giving it to us by his grace. That's what grace is, giving things that you don't deserve. I know there's a good acronym that people use a lot. It's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what it is there for the servant. So as we wrap up the first 10 verses, the attitude of the disciple towards sin and forgiveness and faith and his duty, knowing that he is doing the things that he's been called to do. Let's jump into verse 11 here. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there he met ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Verse 17, so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Where are the other nine, Jesus is asking. So he's going through this town. And if any of you guys have looked at a map, Galilee and Samaria are not the best ways to get up to Jerusalem. It'd be like going in a big circle. Uh, But we see our Lord being so purposefully driven in what he's doing. Because Galilee and Samaria are border neighbors. Yet there's Jews and Samaritans. They don't like each other. And so what does Jesus do? He goes right down the border to interact with both sides. And as he's doing that, he interacts with ten lepers. One who happens to be a Samaritan. The other nine are Jews. And it says there in verse 12 that they had to stand afar off away. As you guys know in Leviticus 13, by law, uh, those who have leprosy, the lepers, are not allowed with the rest of society. They have to stay in their own area. And so they kept that law and they were away from the rest of the people. So they must have stood afar off and they shouted out to Jesus, Jesus, master. But master over what? Master over whom? If you guys remember back in Mark chapter 5, Aaron taught this study. We saw that the voice of Jesus had control over a number of things. One which was demons. The other was death, right? And illness. And the seas. And so these lepers know that if Jesus would just speak, or if Jesus would just look at them as the master of these things, they would depart. They would go away. And so Jesus calls out to him and he says, go, show yourselves to the priests. Go, show yourselves to the religious priests. That's it. That's all he says. But look at their response. They're obedient. And so it was as they went on their way to the priests, they were cleansed, healed. But only one returns. And so when he falls down on his face, Jesus says, where are the other nine? Where have they all gone? And so if you can imagine there, as they're walking to see the Jewish priest, all of a sudden they're cleansed. Their skin is back to normal. Those claws that were on them can come off now. Um, The torture is gone from their physical bodies. They can eat normally again. They can hang out with family and friends there in society. They can have a normal life again, being cleansed as lepers. And being caught up in the moment and being caught up in the miracle that had just taken place, they forget about the person who did it for them. Their attention was all in the product of the miracle rather than the person who was responsible for it. Only one had paid attention. Only one had gone back to worship the Lord. And so easy it is for even today, not even with miracles, but just blessings that we just get. We get so caught up in everything we have that we completely lose sight of Jesus, who is responsible for, responsible for giving them all to us. They're all a direct result of the cross. They're all gifts from the Lord. And even in the healing ministry of these people we see on TV and whatnot, they're, they're so in tune with healing people. 
And that's their ministry. That's what they're driven at doing. And in doing so, they completely forget Jesus as the one who is responsible for doing that. Yet this man has not forgotten. And the reason why I raise this question, this issue, is because if you don't recognize the person who is responsible for miracles, it has eternal consequences. Look at verse 18 with me. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He sees the one who's worshiping. He sees the one who recognized the healing as a sign pointing to Jesus. And a better translation of verse 19 is, Your faith has saved you. It's a great thing to be temporally healed, I think, obviously. To have that happen in your life is incredible. But it's a far greater thing to be forgiven of your sins and to have that healing take place. And that's what happens here in verse 19. The others missed it. And Jesus tells this person, your faith has saved you. This man was saved now. He got the picture. He understand the reason for the miracle. It was a sign simply pointing to Christ and his salvation. And that's what these other people needed to see. And they didn't. And so as those other nine, those other nine former lepers went to see the Jewish priests, they were declared by the Jewish priests cleansed. And they now had access back into society. But when this leper came back, he stood before the high priest, and he was declared eternally clean, and he had access into heaven, into fellowship with God forever. And so if I ever see these people who are involved in these ministries or people who so desire to be healed, what, what do you want more, family? The eternal healing or just the temporal one? Now, we obviously pray for healing. We do. But our prayer is that it would be directed for the glory of God and that it would lead to salvation for somebody. We may not know who it is, but we pray that healing leads to salvation, as it did here with the leper. That's our aim. That's our goal. The ultimate purpose of healings and miracles is for the glory of God and for the salvation of people. They're only but signs that point to the salvation that Christ offers. Let's keep going along. Verse 20 now. We're going to get into a dialogue here with the Pharisees. We're going to get a good glimpse of the kingdom of God and and what it means for Jesus to be coming back. He says there in verse 20, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Let's stop there for a moment. The kingdom of God is within those men? The Pharisees? And I know there's been a lot of debate over the years as far as what Jesus meant here, because obviously as Pharisees we knew they did not accept Christ. So how can you possibly reject the king and be in the kingdom? It doesn't make sense. So to better translate that last part of 21, it would be to say that the kingdom of God was amongst them. It was in their midst. And why was it in their midst? Because Jesus was right there standing face to face with the people. The king was on the earth. And the rulership of God wasn't necessarily going to be physical at the time as much as it was going to be spiritual. The rulership of God is in the hearts of his believers. The rulership of God was in the hearts of his disciples at the time. And so as he rules in their hearts and directs and guides their lives, the kingdom of God spreads by its people. So it reaches Asia and Turkey and Spain and Africa and Morocco and Tennessee and Texas and here in California and in your workplace and in your school and in your families. That's where the kingdom of God goes where his people go. It's a spiritual one. And the Pharisees were searching for a sign because they were under Roman rule. They want their king now. They wanted to be set free then and now. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in 22. He says, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
So Jesus said, don't listen to them. Don't follow after what they have to say. Listen, when I come back, when my return is here, everyone's going to know. As lightning hits from one side of the earth to the next, that's how people will know. It's going to be a huge thing. The return of Christ will not be a secret. It will not be kept silent. It will be massive. And when he says here, don't follow them, because when it comes, you will know. But he brings it full circle and he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He was referring to his cross. He says, before that aspect of the kingdom of God comes into play, I must suffer. And the things that I'm going to suffer for is on your behalf. The wrath of God that is due on me and due on you, I will take. And that's what he wanted them to get there. They need to understand that. And so he continues on. He gives good illustrations here in verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Take this verse home with you. Look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. And so the illustration here he gives is powerful. He goes back to Genesis and he tells the story of the flood, how Noah was preaching for years and years as he was building the ark and nobody came to repentance except for his family. And so as life was going on, people were going about their normal lives and then destruction came. The flood came that nobody else thought would ever come and wiped out everybody but Noah. Life was going on. There were no signs. In fact, the day that Noah preached, remember, there was no clouds. There was no signs to say there would be destruction. As he's going into the ark, people are mocking him. And as soon as he gets in there, God directed him in there. And then destruction comes. And he says the same was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Life continued to go on. And it's interesting that the things that Jesus names here aren't necessarily inherently sinful. It's not bad to eat or to drink or to, to be married or to work and to sell goods and to build things. But he's saying that when your life is consumed with those things and when all of the world is focused on living simply for those things and they take the place of God, that's when sin runs rapid. And that's when judgment comes. And he says there, this is the same way it will happen when I come back. Life will be going on exactly what we see today. Life will be happening as usual. People are eating, drinking, being married, not being married, building things, working hard at their jobs. And that's when the second coming will come. And there'll be no other signs. And he says there in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. You guys know the story. The angel directed Lot and his family to exit the city there, and the angels were going to come and destroy it. And as fire and brimstone came down, they were told specifically not to look back. And what happened? Lot's wife looked back. In fleeing from those things, there was something still in her, so desiring to hold on to the world, so desiring to not let it go. And so Jesus qualifies that verse by saying this now. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. The only way to save your life is to lose it. Lot's wife tried to preserve it. And what happened? Pillar of salt, as soon as she looked back, it was over for her. And so as Christians, our goal is this thing right here. Verse 33, that you would lose your life. But what does that look like? To lose my life. To give up your own dreams and your own aspirations and your own desires. Get rid of the thinking that you know what's best for yourself and commit all that you have to the Lord in service. Your schooling, your work, your finances, your family, 
your talents, your abilities, all that is sacrificed for the service of the Lord. And it's committed to Him. And everything else is forsaken. Your sin, your desires, the things that you want to do, it's an end of you. To pick up your cross is to deny yourself. And your life ends at that moment. And so every morning we wake up and we say, well, I'm going to end my life and my life is committed to Christ at this moment. My own desires are done for. Unlike the life of Lot's wife, she wanted to hold on. Verse 34, I tell you in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Simple illustration. He says, Wherever the corpse of the dead body is, you guys know that that's where the vultures hover around, the eagles that go around those areas. And so as dead bodies and the corpse invite the vultures, so too does this world invite judgment. And as everyone knows where the corpse is at by the sign of the eagles and the vultures flying, everyone will know that judgment has come by what is happening. And he tells us there in 35 and 36, people are going to be doing their thing. They're going to be in bed. They're going to be working in the fields. One will be taken. One will be left. And the other will be used for destruction. Their judgment will come. You remember, you remember the parable, the, the wheat and the tares? Jesus said the angel would come down and sift through those who are good, the wheat, and the tares. We're together now at this moment. He says there will come a day when the two will be separated. One will be preserved, and the other will be thrown into the chaff and into the fire for everlasting punishment. And this second coming is that time when all these things will take place. It will not matter if the person you're sleeping with is a Christian, because they will be taken, and you will not. It will not matter that they were both in the field working or that they were both in the factory working or that they went to the same schools. It won't matter how many good careers you had or how many partners you had or how many good sports games you won or how athletic you were or all your credentials. It won't matter what your last name is, what your ethnic background is. None of those things will matter or count on this final day. There will be two categories that day the saved and the lost. That's it. That's it. Nothing else matters. So now in my mind, it makes complete sense to lose my life at this moment. Because if I want to hold on to it and use it for my own good and and have fun still while I'm young and do the things that I want to do, who knows when the judgment's coming. Jesus will have his reign here. And Paul wrote there in Acts 17, preaching to the most intellectual people in, on the planet there in Athens, Greece. He had a chance to preach to them. At the end, he says, God is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And when that day comes, nothing else will matter except for whether or not you were saved or you weren't. And Jesus stresses that point here. He wants his disciples to know that when I'm gone, that clock starts to tick. I ascend, the Spirit comes down, the church is here. And now we're here left waiting, doing our business. And it would be a massive disservice to me to not give you guys an opportunity to repent. If there's anybody in here who doesn't follow after Christ. To know there, back in verse 25, Jesus said, These things I will suffer, and those things were on your behalf. Because when Adam sinned, everyone sinned at that moment. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short. There are none that are righteous. There is no way you can make it in heaven on your own. Not on your own. And so when Jesus had to go and suffer these things, he was bearing the wrath of God on your behalf and on mine. And there on the cross, he offered forgiveness. He offered salvation to us. And if you reject that, Everything you do in your life that you think is so great will come to an end. And the believers there will be saying, by grace I am unworthy of this still, but we will rejoice because God has preserved us. 
And so as disciples, we look at that. The kingdom of God, the purpose of healings, and our attitude towards these things of sin and forgiveness and how we would respond. Nothing else will matter. And so as you guys leave here tonight, I want you to remember one thing. Look at verse 32 and take that home tonight. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the one who still held on to the world, who looked back, walking as a believer at that moment. She had an opportunity to be saved. And I think her life is a great demonstration for all professing Christians. Because when that day comes, it will be exposed who the family of God is, who those are who truly walk with the Lord compared to those who still inwardly hold on to the desires of the world and have not forsaken all to follow after him. Remember Lot's wife. Amen? Let me pray. Fathers, we look at your word and we get to see who we are in relation to you as unworthy servants, yet, God, you have forgiven us. And we praise you for that. And we thank you so much that, God, you saved us. And we willingly and joyfully forsake our lives to follow after you. Doing the things that you have called us to do. Being the servants here in this kingdom. We want you to direct our lives, Lord. And we want to bring as many people with us so that on that last day, we can stand under your righteousness with thanksgiving and that there would be many with us, Lord. Many people who we care about, the loved ones that we know. So help us to remember Lot's wife, to remember the lesson there of the one who did not forsake all. Father, we thank you for this time and uh, be with the rest of the study. We thank you for the great truths of your word, and we pray that you would just continue to bless the people. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.